Hi, this is Robert Kiyosaki, and you're listening to Entrepreneur Circle, Eric Cabral. On this episode... Self-storage has had this scarlet letter of being like for the lower classes of society. And the reality is that's just not true. Self-storage has seen a, a really big uptick in utilization and actually the largest uh, generational utilizers are the millennials. So millennials are utilizing self-storage more than any previous generation, which is really what's causing a surge in physical occupancy and what's also causing a surge in overall demand and, and price per square foot. So we've seen massive increases in price per square foot. So COVID really was a massive catalyst for self-storage because self-storage thrives on transition. So whether you're moving up or you're moving down, transition is what drives the success of self-storage. You have now entered the entrepreneur circle. Hey there, folks, and welcome to the Entrepreneur Circle, where we built a community that shares lessons learned throughout our journeys, celebrate wins, our eureka moments, and embrace the F word, meaning failure, which I've come to realize that failure is success in progress. I'm Eric Cabral, your host, a husband, a father of two brilliant girls, and I've been called a heart-centered entrepreneur by my peers and mentors. My mission in life is to make the world a better place, one mic at a time. So I'm happy and humble to have you join in on that mission. And I hope that by the end of the show, we would have added value in your life. So if you're ready to jump into the circle, let's get to it. Are you ready to invest in real estate but don't have the time or enough education to do it by yourself? Accountable Equity helps accredited investors who are looking for tax-advantaged investments. So anyone looking for a team of professionals who hold themselves accountable with theirs and your real estate investments, Accountable Equity is your boots-on-the-ground team. Their mission is to bring private offerings to their investors and their clients. With a team of committed and experienced investors themselves, Accountable Equity is always looking for partners to participate in alternative investments which extend beyond publicly traded equities like stocks. Accountable Equity makes alternative passive cash flow possible for more people than ever before in our economy. To find out more, visit AccountableEquity.com. That's AccountableEquity.com. Or look for them on LinkedIn or Facebook. That's AccountableEquity.com or Accountable Equity. That's Accountable Equity, your partner for true passive real estate investments. Welcome back to another episode of the Entrepreneur Circle. And today I'm super excited to bring to you one of my dudes. Uh, man, I love this guy, man. And you guys are going to appreciate and love him too by the end of this episode. Trust me. Uh, because not only is he killing it on all fronts, and I'll just give you a quick cap of what he is and what he does. He's the VP of Investor Relations at Hearthfire Holdings. He invests in self-storage with his team throughout the country, which, you know, by the way, he has a killer team at Keller Williams. Uh, they work with buyers and sellers and investors. They speak in the language so they can help you as an investor. Uh, but what I love really most whenever Mark and I get together, a spoiler alert, his name's Mark, uh, is he's built a team around and his culture around um, leadership, accountability, and collaboration. But we're going to get into all that cool stuff. Welcome to the show, Mark McGuire. Eric, 
I'm pumped to hang today, man. Just riff on some stuff and help drop some knowledge. Yeah, it's going to be fun, man. And you, you've got so much knowledge to drop uh, whenever we talk, and especially when you lead our Philly GoBundance events. Um, you know, always always a good time, always a good group. Uh, so I, I appreciate and thank you for that here live on the air. Um, but yeah, let's, let's jump into your story, bro, about, um, well, let's, 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 I have to, I have to poke a little bit about this one because we did joke about this last time I saw you, Mark McGuire. I mean, blessing, curse, having that name. Yeah. Has it worked for you? Has it worked against you? (laughs) I I would say it's worked more against me than for me, but, uh, I do have his rookie card though. So there's that. Which which you told me <laughs> you were born on his rookie year. <laughs> his rookie year. I know. I was like, Mom, come on, man. Yeah. Couldn't we do something better than this? <laughs> Someday maybe uh, we'll buy all the URLs and all the Google search uh, keywords, figure it out, crack the code. But brother, before we really, really kick it off here, I want to ask you a question. And I mentioned it to you before the mic turned on, the Eureka moment, but I want to ask you a separate question. And we'll get into your Eureka moment in a second. What was it like growing up at the McGuire dinner table? What were the conversations being had? It's funny, man. Uh, that's a, actually, I've never been asked that question. What a fascinating question. My family was always on the run. I think I ate dinner in my mom's minivan more than I ate dinner at my, my kitchen table because we played travel sports three seasons a year. Um, actually, really four seasons a year. Uh, but, you know, fall was soccer season. Winter was basketball season. Spring was baseball season. And baseball bled into soccer. And soccer, you know, bled into basketball. And basketball bled into baseball. So, you know, we were always going. I mean, we were at practice three, four nights a week. And we wow. would play like my brother was playing in leagues. And I was playing in leagues. So, Conversation at our dinner table, probably it was more so lessons learned on the field, man. Mm. Our life was all about sports and collaboration and teamwork and wow. understanding, you know, how your role impacts others. But then also at the same time, not having the ability to quit. Like if we didn't feel like doing something, you didn't get the option to, to be like, ah, yeah, just I'm going to opt out today. It was mm. never an option in my family. It was like, hey, you made a commitment. You honor your commitment. You do what you say. You said you're going to be there. You're going to be there. I don't care how much you don't want it. Wow. That's powerful, dude. So so that was sort of the family culture. That was the dynamic and the DNA uh, growing up. How much of that has translated into business? I'm imagining a lot of... Yeah, I would say that, you know, 100, 100%. Um you know, when it comes down to business, like my word is all I have. And if I tell you something, uh, you know, if I tell you I'm going to do something and I don't do it, I will apologize up and down on the very rare occasion that it gets, you know, something slips through the cracks. I will apologize up and down and then figure out some other way to add, to bring more value and to, to, you know, try to find a way to make it up. Um, but I mean, my mom, poor mom, if she hears this, she's going to kill me for saying that, but <laughs> Probably heartbroken. Like, what do we? We had dinner. We had dinner together. <laughs> but, but from what you remember, when, how, how many siblings? How many? How many kids were? Uh, so I have two siblings. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. My sister's much younger than me, so it was really my brother and myself. My sister grew up mm. on our soccer field. I mean, the, like uh, we have like pictures of my sister in like our old soccer jerseys, where it's like <laughs> basically functioning as a dress. We uh, 
she was like the team mascot, but uh, everybody <laughs> loved her. And yeah, I mean, she was awesome. She still is awesome. That's amazing, dude. Yeah, good thing. Um, I'm guessing baseball was probably in the mix at some point. So it would yeah, have helped you. Baseball have that was name. in the mix. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about baseball for me. <laughs> I got in my own head. I got the yips, man. Like I, I would play catcher. First of all, I was left-handed. Played catcher. I couldn't get the ball back to the pitcher. Like I would either throw it in the dirt or throw it over the wow. dude's head. So then I started lollipopping it. And then I was just like, I got to this point where I was like, you know, I don't like this sport. I'm out. Wow. So what was your jam? What was your game? Uh, basketball. basketball. I still play pickup basketball twice a week uh, when oh, my, wow. my body cooperates and I'm not injured. Yeah. But we play pickup basketball at 6 a.m. We have a really Whoa. cool group of guys locally that we play with. Nice position. What do you play? Position. I was point guard. Yeah. 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 I was 5'8". I was white. And, you know, that's all I ever going to take you to the basketball court. Are you a perimeter guy? You like to get into the paint. You mix it up. Oh, no. All perimeter. Contact, <laughs> not for me. I tried, to, I tried to use my smarts to the best of my ability. I was never the fastest guy. I was never the... I was certainly not the tallest guy. I was never the strongest guy. But I, my basketball IQ was pretty good. I could see the play. Yeah. Yeah, dude. That goes right into business. Um, but yeah, let's... Let's tie, I love I love tying sports in with business because there's so many parallels, so many similarities. So, you know, right, just leading teams and like you said, and it's the playbooks and all this stuff. But uh, before we can get into that, um, let's talk about your eureka moment in life. Like what was a moment in time where you potentially pivoted or had this breakthrough? Yeah. So my eureka moment in life, I was um, I was working. Uh, so I played in a band professionally. And I was working for my grandfather in the his apartments and like in between touring. And um, it was March of 2014. I had gone out to Crested Butte, Colorado to visit one of my good friends, went snowboarding out west for the first time there. And I was like, man, Colorado is amazing. I think I could move out here. And so that was at this time we had a record contract with RCA Records on the table. And wow. You know, I was like hanging on for a payday because we had spent seven years of my life touring, like funneling money and time into this business endeavor. Wow. My my first LLC at uh, 19 years old, and um, I was the logistics guy, and I played drums, and got right. to a point where I was like, you know what, like I'm in this for the wrong reasons. I'm chasing dollars here. I lost my passion for it, and mm -hmm. I had my real estate license. I'd gotten like two years prior, and I'd been like learning, you know, how to sell real estate for a couple of years. And it was like the moment where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to just jump off this cliff. I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm in control. I am going to, you know, put on my back and make it work. Mm. Dude, we, we, we're so cut from the same cloth because I literally was in seven, eight years in a band as well. Lipstick and cigarettes. Like you, you go to YouTube and you find me being the drummer. Uh, and we were local heroes, um, you know, but you guys took it to the next level. RCA records and like, we never made money, like maybe off t-shirts, but um, so what was that like? Because <laughs> I think that this ties in and I brought this parallel in too, um, as musicians, Really, the only ones that could potentially set themselves up for success run it like a business, right? And hold each other accountable. Like we're the most musicians and creators are the most flaky people on the planet, right? They 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 can't oh, hold brutal. a schedule. They can't show up the band practice when they need to be there, you know. Um, so did you basically lead 
that band? And like, were you the leader that like organized and scheduled and set up tour dates? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And the answer to that question is no. In fact, I was in the least position of leadership in the band, mm. which fundamentally was another thing that I'd realized that like I'm not a guy who can just kind of sit back and not be in a leadership position. I, I Anything that I run, I run like it's mine, whether it's mine or it's not. I'm a guy, I'm, I'm like a, I'm a light switch, no dimmer. So I'm either doing it and I'm 110% or I'm not touching it and it doesn't exist in my world. And um, with the band, like we were fortunate, man. Like everyone in our band went to the high school I'd gone to. Like we, you know, everyone kind of brought their own value in its own way. The the lead singer was was very, and he played guitar classically uh, or trained, went to UArts for jazz and played trumpet as well. The the bass player played sax and he really had a lot of the, um, the like the, I'm going to say like the music business from mm. a like kind of figuring out how to like get into clubs and bookings and, um, you know, structuring a lot of that and understanding like the people network. I was more of the logistics guy that, you mm. know, when it push came to shove and we're running like break evens, we're trying to do merchandise and look at cost to create and cost to, to, to do a run and like how much do we got to sell and, you know, doing, um, you know, planning our tours and like j- drive distance and logistics and timing and load ins and, you know, when we got to leave by and hotels. And I, I did all of the back end logistics planning was kind of mm. what I had done. That's that's amazing, dude. Uh, can you share the name of the band so we could find you and uh, yeah, and abs- the the band name was uh, Find Vienna uh, at the time. It's transitioned to Bel Air, um, and those guys are still doing it. I'm still cool oh, wow. with those guys. Those guys are still good dudes. And wow, amazing. God bless them. Yeah, that's so cool, dude. So the aha moment uh, was transitioning, right? You 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 were in the business. You're a musician. Um, and then you realized, and what I know of you, I'll share with the audience here is uh, real estate has been in your family for generations. So that realization, can you share there? Like, um, you're like, yeah, I, I need to just, it's in my DNA, it's in my blood. <laughs> you, you know, what's funny. Um, I actually, uh, I grew up trying to not do it because I didn't mm. want to be like, well, you just, you, you are so-and-so's son or grandson. You know, I, I, I didn't want mm. it to, I never wanted it to be a nepotism thing. I always wanted like my merits, my accomplishments to stand on their own two feet. So I very intentionally tried to to go about it. And ironically, my cousin, who's technically my second cousin, was the one that got me involved in real estate sales. And um, that came about as a result of him. Like he was, he would come to our shows with the band. He's like, "Oh, you guys are awesome!" And I started hanging with him. And he didn't have any kids, was married, so like living the bachelor life, we would be getting drinking, and and you know we would be. Uh, you know, hanging out up at the just lake house. And and so I would be going fishing and we'd be talking a lot. And he's like, you would kill it in real estate. You should come work with me. Mm. And so that was ultimately like, I thought I needed a college degree, which I didn't have. I dropped out of college. And um, he's like, nah, man, you can do it in like three weekends. And so like, I was like, oh, really? And got started. Wow. It was that quick, that easy. Like when you made the decision. Well, I, I wouldn't say it was that quick. That's what. That's how quick it could be. I mm-hmm. said, oh, I can't do weekends because I'm playing on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So I basically phased it in over like six months and did it like two days a week, worked for my grandfather three days a week, was like going to class and like just basically doing whatever grunt work I could for him to be around the business and learn the business mm-hmm. and then playing on the weekends, Friday, Saturdays, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. 
Yeah. So at what point during this, you know, you're sort of getting in, you're cutting your teeth, you're like, okay, yeah, this this is starting to make sense. And I'm just need to get, and thanks for sharing that. You know, you're like, um, uh, you were actually intentionally avoiding <laughs> becoming a real estate guy. And uh, um, you sort of had to come at, come to peace with that. And uh, what what was that like when you were like, you know what, this is something that feels right, you know, and um, I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to commit. Like once you started to commit, what started to happen? Well, so I actually, I, like, I, 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 what I realized was that I was afraid of being controlled. I mm-hmm. was afraid I was running away from somebody else dictating the terms of my life. Like, that's really what it was about for me. And so it was like, how can I, what can I do or how can I figure out a way to dictate my own terms and dictate my own life? And I, you know, real estate was at the time, you know, I'd gone, I was going to Temple University. That's what I dropped out of. I'd, I'd, I mean, I graduated like top, I think 7% of the, my high school class and like had AP credits. And, you know, I like on paper, I was the, the smart kid, not the valedictorian, but I was smart, you know, by most people's standards. And like, I had it all going for me, you know, and uh, my family always valued education. It was like very much in the forefront of my mind. Like, do, don't you dare think about not doing your homework. That was that lesson was instilled. I waited one time to do a book report in third grade. I waited till the night before, and my mom created such like she wreaked so much havoc in my life that it was the last time I ever waited till the last minute to do anything. Mm. And so, um, thanks, mom, by the way. And <laughs> so. I realized that like I wanted to control my own destiny and that like a lot of the, the, the puppet strings that were attached to me were kind of attached with money. Mm. And I was like, I'm never going to be controlled by money. And so I didn't care what it was that I had to do to get it. So long as it was, you know, ethical, legal, et cetera. Um, I wasn't going to go sell my soul just to have money and, you know, go screw people to get it. But I was like, Hey, I'll work hard. Because being in the band, dude, you work freaking long hours. People think you just show up and play for a set and that's what you work. <laughs> that's like the farthest thing from the truth. It's it's the practice. It's the the packing up. It's the, the loading in, the loading out, the selling the merch, the driving there, oh the driving goodness. back. It's like so much. Especially as drummers, we don't get enough love because... First off, we're not literally in the front of the stage, right? So the, the lead guitarist, the lead singer, whoever, they get all the attention. And then the guy in the background, like, dude, when you relate, when the gig was over, who the heck was helping you pack? Like, I was like, I had to physically pull people over or yell over to people like, hey, can you help me out? I'm like, I got like 100 cymbals, 100 toms. Like, I got a bunch of stuff that needs to go in separate bags each. Right. Or I'm going to, right. I can't enjoy a beer and go hang out with everybody. And uh, until this is all done, like people just, they don't consider like the drummer's the hardest working guy in the whole band. <laughs> Dude. Well, you know what's funny? Re- totally agreed. 100% and we got to lug agreed. it all. We got to lug it all. And we're responsible for band practice because it's usually that's where band practice is usually in our house, in our place. Well, I will say I was fortunate enough that there was two guys in our band who were brothers. So band practice was at their place, but it wasn't because I had to lug it all everywhere. I just left my kid over there. It was easier. There you but, go. Yeah. Um, there were times where, dude, we were like, talk about bootstrap. We would take, we'd play in New York City. There was this place called the Lion's Den. I'm, I'll never forget this, dude. I had my hardware bag, my cymbal bag, and my snare drum. And I am lugging this thing, walking the streets of New York City. <sighs> 
from the train station to the lion's den. And we played for like 25, 30 minutes. Like it made <sighs> no sense. It's no brutal. sense. And I'm just like, I look back at that now and I'm like, <laughs> we were idiots. Like that was so <laughs> stupid. Like there's got to be better economies of scale than what we had there. <laughs> But thank goodness for those venues that did say, hey, you, we got a kit here for you. And then we had to bring, just, you know, some of the, you know, the symbols and stuff. But I always that always gave me agita, dude, because I was I was like, is it a single bass drum? Do I need to bring a double bass? Because I, I like to do triplets and, you know, all this. other. So I need a double bass pedal. But then also I'm like, how many times do they have? Is it one time? Right? Where's the position? And like, ugh, it used to stress me out, dude. And like, it would take me 25 minutes just to set it up before we were supposed to go on. <laughs> Everybody waiting <laughs> on me. I'm like, oh, it's not perfect. <laughs> so, but anyway, we you uh, have to send me the the stuff for your band now. Yeah, dude. I'll, You're not getting well, off of this. You're not getting <laughs> off easy here. You're not getting out of this one. You see me with long hair and just being ridiculous. But all uh, right, well, what's yeah. the name of your band then? Huh? Yeah, it's uh, Lipstick and Cigarettes. Just go look it up. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. It's on on YouTube. Um, all that crap. All right. YouTube Done. was just on the rise at the time. Thank goodness. In 2008 to whatever it was, 2012. Or I can't remember. 16, I don't know. Hello, this is Josh McCowan, CEO of Viva May Hospitality and the beautiful Renault Resort Winery. I have to tell you, the secret's out. And the secret is On Air Brands. On Air Brands Creative Agency, which specializes in launching podcasts, transforming live events into live streaming events, and social media marketing soup to nuts. On Air Brands has changed the game. There'll never be a day from here forward when you and I and our companies don't need to be on the air. Every brand needs to be on the air, but so few know that. So it's great to work with a group that are ahead of the curve and to find a company that has been built on the core foundation of the future of marketing. If you're ready to broadcast your brand like they've done for my brands, take the next step and make a change that can transform your business, reach out to On Air Brands today. That's onairbrands.com. Yes, onairbrands.com. Let's let's get into some some stuff with with you now, where you are currently, what you're currently doing. Um, I know that you have an amazing team. Uh, you got an amazing partner in Surge. Uh, let's talk about what you're currently doing. Yeah. So currently, um, I'm you know the, the I, I don't even I, I there's a title that's attached to my email signature. I, I think you said it, but I honestly <laughs> yeah. can't even tell you what it is. I'll tell you. I'm the, kind of I'll, like just so so I could help you. It's <laughs> VP of Investor Relations and Acquisitions. <laughs> for <laughs> I'll remind you the name of your company. But yeah, yeah. it's it, it's good. I mean, that is literally what you do, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. So I, I'm on, I would say the capital raising side of things with Hearthfire. Um, you know, we buy self-storage properties and we syndicate. So we, um, you know, we aggregate capital um, from, you know, I would say average people, mom and pop investors. Um, the last couple in offerings we've done have, been, have allowed for sophisticated investors to participate mm. going forward. Uh, I'm not sure if that will continue, but um you know, these are 50,000 minimum investments and, you know, you pool 20, 30, 40, 50 people together, depending upon, you know, capital requirements and, and um, you know, the, the purchase price. 
and we buy self-storage facilities. We operate them. Mm -hmm. Um, You commit the check and you get paid quarterly distributions and you get a portion of the proceeds when we exit the the property, you know, three to seven years later. I love it. I love it. For for people who are not familiar with why self-storage is such a great alternative to all the other vehicles and all the other things that are, you know, the cool, sexy way to go. I want to get into multifamily. I want to syndicate, right? It seems like every conversation we're in, in our circles anyway, that's all anybody ever wants to do. Can you talk to the people um, about why self-storage is awesome and why you also call it uh, the bastard child in real estate? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, self-storage has had this scarlet letter of being like for the lower classes of society and the reality is that's just not true. Um, you know, self-storage has seen a, a really big uptick in um, utilization and actually the largest uh, generational um, utilizers are the millennials. So millennials are utilizing self-storage um, more than any previous generation, which is really what's causing a surge in physical occupancy and what's also causing a surge in overall demand and, and price per square foot. So we've seen massive increases in price per square foot, what the rents are. So, in, I mean, COVID, COVID really uh, was a massive catalyst for self-storage because self-storage thrives on transition. So whether you're moving up or you're moving down, mm. transition is what drives the success of self-storage. And what's great about it is it can be used for personal or it can be used for business. So you have so such a really wide total addressable market. And it's really about a matter of identifying what the need is in your market and how do you target them specifically and what are they willing to pay? And sometimes you could get, you know, a facility operator who's these people have had these things for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, we're seeing all time high physical, you know, occupancy and they think they're getting, you know, really good rent. Well, they haven't moved the needle on the rents in like four or five years. Like mm-hmm. these people have been just renting it out. They're like, yeah, I'm hundred percent full. And I'm like, good for you. I'll, I'll gladly buy your facility. Then. <laughs> so yeah, that's wow. why. Yeah. I love it, man. It's, um, it's also, I would consider the other redheaded, uh, stepchild in the, in our industry is, uh, it's mobile homes. Right. Mm-hmm. People are always like, oh, why would I want to get into that? Or self-storage, man, that's lower class stuff. Why would I get involved? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you say to those people that are like, wow, hey, Mark, I mean, everything you said here, but um, it's an asset class that is, I mean, imagine less competitive, right? Every, I mean, yep. how many multifamily no, deals? That, that's 100% it. I mean, look, A, there's less people who can play at the, the at the volume of cash and capital that's required. I mean, Let's just say you want to buy multifamily, right? You could buy a five unit or a 10 unit. Maybe the purchase price is 600 to a million bucks, depending upon your market. Well, in self-storage, like if you want to buy a a semi-decent, like not like class A, not class B, class C facility that's like 30, 40,000 square feet, you're going to need, you know, the purchase price can be four to $5 million. Mm -hmm. So- and, and the loan to value, like the leverage that you can get on self-storage, assuming you're not getting SBA financing, which is another reason why people used to love them, you're only going 65%. So with multifamily, you can go 80. With self-storage, especially on value-add projects, you're only going 65. So there's a lot more capital that's required to enter the game. Mm. And um, these types of assets, they're not trading 
a lot of these aren't trading off market. A lot of it's through a broker network. So it's mm-hmm. harder to like crack that, that sphere of respect. It takes years to get people to look at you seriously, to even entertain a letter of, enter, of intent, let alone, then you have to go and do your due diligence, take the facility down and perform. Because if you go and you fail to perform and you get a property under agreement and you fall out, that broker will never take a deal from you again. Mm, yeah. Reputation, man. Yep. It's paramount. Um, one last question for storage versus, say, you know, single family or, or commercial or small multis or even large multis. You know, we understand it as, you know, I'm going to add value, right? I'm going to add value through, you know, uh, fixing the units up. You know, I'm going to add value by, you know, painting carpet or, you know, upgrading some of the um, the tech maybe or, or upgrading, you know, or adding laundry, you know, facilities within the uh, the the asset. What are some of the value adds that um, once you walk in, like what are the top three things that you're like, okay, yeah, boom, boom, could fix that, that, and that. And this yep. is boom, it's worth millions more. <laughs> First of all, we're looking for properties that are under managed, under rented. So we're looking with places that when we get the rent roll, when was their last rent increase? Um, what would the market support from a price per square foot standpoint? And what is this this facility currently performing at? So we are looking like that's that's lever number one. Lever number two is what's the the operating expenses and tech implementation? Is there any tech? Is there any automation with respect to like, you know, uh, automated gate access um, through, you know, call it like whether it's Bluetooth or it's, you know, gate controllers um is there is there the ability for remote access and 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 basically i'm going to say a a humanless check-in check-out experience can someone go and check into a facility without requiring you know some paper contract talking to a human driving around touring the facility like we are going towards a not humanless because they'll never be totally humanless. I don't see how that happens. Because you still got to clean the units out and make sure everything's swept and looking nice and then maintain the doors. But we want to minimize human contact and give people the ability to just go and rent. So mm. is that in place? Um, third thing is, you know, are there any expansion capabilities? Will the market support expansion? So, you know, is there the ability to add additional square footage um, to the facility? but the current owner just doesn't have the capital to do it. A lot of these places uh, are have been owned for a long period of time. The, the facility owners use the revenue, the net or the net operating income to pay for their lifestyle. And so mm. they don't have a ton of slush left over to go and dump in 600 to 1,000 to a million bucks to go and do a 15 to 20,000 square foot renovation. But by doing that renovation, you could make that property worth a lot more. So... Whether it's the, the expansion, you know, that's going to get you there, or it's just an overall, um, you know, deferred capex, so paving, reskinning, painting, roofing, like these things that you can improve the appearance and the lighting and 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 the 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 perception of safety and security, which would allow you know a different demographic to want to rent your facility. At which point, it can change the price per foot that you can charge. Mm, yeah. I love that, dude. Sort of like refreshing it, rebranding it, right? Putting out a, yeah. a different vibe than what people know it to be. But it's That's not true. even just like, you know, like, so, you know, how there's the multifamily syndicators where they plop a sign out front and go, oh, we did a rebrand. Well, um, 
yeah, I mean, that's not like, that's not what we're looking to do. We're not looking to just like slap another, you know, vinyl sign over top of the first vinyl sign and say, Hey, we own a <laughs> new management. Oh, by the way, like we're going to just rake you over the coals with the rent increases. No, that's not <laughs> our vision of doing value add. Our vision of doing value add is actually improving the property and the facility so that, you know, it, it brings value to not just the facility, uh-huh. but to the town. Like, how can we bring value to the community and <clears throat> overall area, not just, you know, do something that's going to line our pockets? Because if you do something that just lines your pockets, you know, maybe that's good in the short run, but in the long run, you're going to lose. Love that. I'm so glad you're saying all that, you know, because uh, that, that just goes to show you have heart. Right, you 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 have a passion for this, you know, for, from all sides, you know, the investors, the community, uh, the the consumers, everybody. This is this is really what I love about you, um, and it's coming across. Uh, for our last segment, though, Mark, I want to share or have you share with us a time when you embraced the F word, meaning a failure, and a lesson learned through that. Yeah. Man, I would say, you know, my, my failure that I would say that really learned to embrace was, was the band. I probably like with respect and and the band, you know, got signed to RCA. They ended up, you know, recording an album, ended up getting shelved. Like looking back, I, I pulled the plug right at the right time. Like I got a lot of experience, got a lot of exposure, got a lot of lessons, um, but didn't like get you know, kind of strung along and like, you know, just thrown around like a rag doll while the music industry just chewed us up and ate us up alive. I, I luckily pulled the, pulled the parachute before then, but when I worked in the band, you know, we were going to practice two to three times a week. I would be driving down to like Wilmington, Delaware from, you know, suburban Philadelphia, you know, and we started locally, but then we went to, you know, suburban Wilmington, one of the guitarists, um, was living down, down there outside of Wilmington. And so, you know, I was having to work, I was having to get up, you know, at six in the morning, be up by seven at work at 7am, work till three o'clock then go to practice at like five or six o'clock that night. Wouldn't be home till nine, nine thirty. So, I mean, it was a full day and, and, and it got to a point where, you know, I just realized that I didn't like it enough to keep doing it, but the work ethic and the lessons that it, um, it taught me were, applied and they got applied to, to, to the real estate sales world and other people in real estate, you know, they, they get discouraged when they don't see results. And like, I put in seven years of work to see no results. When I saw results in three months with real estate, I was like, wow, this is like unbelievable. Like this was like my expectations relative to my past failures really allowed for my mindset. Like I could go a long time without getting paid. I could go and get told no a lot of times because all I had been told was no for seven years. So mm. you couldn't f- offend me. The only way you can offend me is to to come after my work ethic. And I've reached the point in life now where that's untouchable. Like if you come after my work ethic, that's not me, that's you. That's your problem. Wow. I relate to that so deeply, dude. <laughs> like everything you just said. Um it's powerful, dude. And um, sometimes, you know, and this could be a therapy session off the mic between us. Uh, you know, like I feel <laughs> like I, I, I sometimes I play the martyr, you know, so you're like for, for so long, like you said, uh, I can go without pay. I can just keep going and going and going and like it doesn't hurt me. Um, but in the long run, it does, you know, because then it hurts the people around you because you're like, hey, 
when are you going to start taking care of the things around you and the people around you? Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. That was a good one. It was really, really powerful. Um, the, the last question I do have that as you were talking about the band and um, giving me flashbacks, the one thing that I would say I miss, I want to see if you miss, is um, the fan base, which in terms today in business is community. Like you build a community, you build a tribe of people that love you and support you. <clears throat> How did that feel to kind of like, do you miss that? And was there anything that you learned from from that and building it and then walking away from it? Do you still do you still talk to them? Um, you know, so being the drummer, I was probably the least in front, right? And so I was kind of the guy that like people would recognize other people from the band and I'd be the last one that they had recognized, which to be honest, was fine with me. Um, and I mean, my values now, like I'd rather be a guy that people don't necessarily know and that has a, a really big bank account than a guy that's in the limelight that has what everyone thinks is success, but is actually dying inside. Uh -huh. And um, so I, for me, the community was the people that I went to battle with. It was less about the people that would show up um, mm -hmm. as, as, as a fan base. Cause like when you playing in a band, man, like you gotta do it for yourself mm -hmm. because there's so many mean angry spiteful people and like take it outside of music like just look at the world in general how many people have tried to start a business and everyone's like oh you're never gonna make it or like <laughs> like the, the you, you go and you just like you know bury your soul and the first thing people do is cut you to pieces mm -hmm. and you're literally like dude what the actual fuck yeah exactly yeah. so i i struggle with that like at, at a certain point you like, like, I want to build people up. I don't want to break people down. So if you can't, and I think this is where the team sports thing comes from me. Like, dude, you go to battle with your teammates who are mm -hmm. on either, either side of the line with you. And like, you're going to battle to be the best that you can be with each other and to constantly improve. And if, and if you embrace that mentality and that mindset, and you don't like get fixed on some outcome that you only have a small amount of control over, you get, you get tied to the, to the, to the, I'm going to say the leading indicators, not the lagging indicators. That's really when you start to see that mental progress. And then once you like mentally shift, then the lagging indicators just show up. Yeah. All good, man. It's, it's, it's funny because I have, I have so many different questions, but I know we're, we're, we're winding down here. Um, I'm just thinking about the whole band experience and like, and, and what we're experiencing now together, you know, you, you running your businesses, uh, myself running businesses. And then like, you know, we talk about EOS and traction. I see the books behind you and rocket fuel. Highly recommend anyone who hasn't picked up those books. Jeez. Gina Wickman has built, um, an amazing sort of platform and ecosystem that I know you adopt and we are going to integrate next uh, year. Imagine getting to the point where you're in a band and you're running it as a business, like I imagine like something massive like Metallica, like they, they probably run EOS. <laughs> they probably run some level 10 meetings, you know, I mean, to get so big to the point where um, what I appreciate about you and your story is you were running it as a business very early on, like very early on, which makes it work kind of, you know, because people get into music or anything creative in the arts. They're like, I'm doing it for the passion and the love. But yeah, eventually you have to turn it into a business if you want to survive. Well, the, either that or like you have to have someone on your team that runs it as a business. Mm -hmm. You can focus on the 
passion and the love. And like, that's totally cool. But you got to have the people around you to take the passion and the love and turn it into something that can sustain the passion and the love. Because let me tell you what, mm-hmm. you can start with passion and love, but if you're not running it the right way, passion yeah. and love just fizzles out, dude. So true, man. Dude, that's just hitting me big time. Like that's that applies definitely in business. Like you can keep running with passion and love, which I call the front end of the business. You know, that's how people perceive it. That's how people see it and respect it and love it. Uh, but yeah, if you're not running the back end of it, which is what we're alluding to, like if you're not running the back end, which is more powerful to sustain and to grow and to build, yeah, and then it's not a real business. It's 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 gonna be a hot hot mess. So, dude. So many lessons, so many takeaways for me personally. I'm hoping that the audience here, um, you know, is going to appreciate it, but then also want to learn more on like how they can potentially chat with you and work with you. What's the best way that people can do that? Yeah, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, backslash investing with Mark. Um, or you can shoot me an email, Mark, M-A-R-K at hfireholdings.com. Um, also, you know, with anything you want to take a look at with what we're doing with Hearthfire, um, if you could just go to www.investingwithmark.com, it'll link you right over there. So Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Investing with Mark, you will find me. Appreciate it. And all of that will be in the show notes if you're driving in your Tesla, you're driving in whatever vehicle, your F-150, uh, Mark is there and he's ready to have conversations. So Dude, thanks so much, man. Looking forward to seeing you at our next event, events, and just hanging and uh, doing more stuff together. Thanks, brother. Absolutely. Dude, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for allowing me to bring some value to, to, your, to your audience. Anytime. That's it for now, folks. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can contact me directly at eric at onairbrands.com. That's eric, E-R-I-K at onairbrands.com. And if you aren't already subscribed to the show, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast platform. And please recommend us to one or two people in your circle. That will go a long, long way to growing our community. Also, if you could rate us on iTunes, just take a moment uh, to give us five stars. And if they have more stars, give all of them. We'd greatly appreciate you for that. And always, always like, subscribe, And share, share, share this show on social media. We'd love you for that as well. And if you have any ideas or want to hear something on a future show, please hit us up. Maybe you have a question for one of my guests or you want to uh, tell a story, a success story. uh, We'd love to hear from you. You can do that, especially if you're on the Anchor platform. You can leave us a voice message. We'd love to incorporate you and your voice on a future episode. Once again, folks, thanks again for listening to the Entrepreneur Circle. Please like, subscribe, and share. Share, share, share. I am Eric Cabral, and as always, remember your network is your net worth. So get in the circle. Mm-hmm.